Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for the gift and blessing you have given us in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would uh, speak to us now, that you would reveal yourself to us, Lord, uh, in your power, in your grace, in your mercy, and in your love. May your hope, Lord God, uh, flow into our hearts. Give us peace and joy, Lord, as we gather in your name. We pray that your word would convict us, would challenge us, Lord, and would reveal to us who you are and that you would comfort us, Lord. And we pray that you would lead us into greater worship of you today. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please be seated. Morning. Good morning. It is so wonderful to see you all this day. Well, I don't know about you all, but when I was in Mexico, I guess this is probably like 20 years ago, my wife and I were staying in this resort and we had to go to the timeshare presentation. Anyone ever been to one of those? Boy, those are fun, right? Super fun, right? They're like, it'll only take an hour, right? That's what they tell you. It'll only take an hour. So like an hour and a half into this thing, they usher us out of the room where we are first meeting with our whatever person who's trying to sell us a timeshare and into another room where the hard sell took place, right? You've been there for a hard sell, right? Oh, that's really fun. Why don't you want to buy? What's wrong with you? Don't you have enough money? Right, all these kind of things. And then they're like, don't you know we have credit? Like, you can buy it on credit, right? And you can, uh, we can, you can open up another credit card or we can give you a loan for it. Now, the problem with all those plans is ultimately, if you want the property, you're going to have to pay for it. You're going to have to pay for it. That's always the fly in the ointment, isn't it? Right, it sounds pretty cool, beautiful place on the coast of Mexico. What could be wrong with it? Well, paying for it could be wrong with it, right? You need to. And so before you buy something like that or anything, one needs to count the cost. One needs to know what it's going to cost them to do that thing that they're going to do. It can be everything from as simple as building with Legos, right? Do I have enough Legos to complete this house that I have in my mind? All the way up to you know, building a nation. Right? Do I have or do we have what we need to do this thing? Counting the cost is an important principle uh, that we as Americans like to really think about, right? We kind of make fun of other places where they don't necessarily think about things beforehand. But we are always like, yes, we are sober-minded people thinking of the cost of it beforehand so we know if we can do it or not. Jesus taps into this impulse here in our gospel passage for today. He's being followed by large crowds, right? Big oodles of people are following him. And why are they following Jesus? He's a healer. He's a healer? Yeah, what else? He's speaking truth, that's right. Uh, I mean, he's immensely popular for those reasons. He's also the son of God, which I think would give him a certain, uh, you know like uniqueness in terms of following him, right? So people would love to see what he's up to and what he's saying and what he's doing. Uh, they also love the show. They love the show of uh, how he would take on the Pharisees, right? Everybody loves it when you take on the stick in the mud, right? The one who's always ruining the party, right? Anyone who calls them out, that's always an exciting thing. And so, uh, which is why, you know, we love like tabloids and things like that, right? 
We always love it when somebody exposes the faults of others. And so uh, Jesus was certainly doing that, not in a tabloid type of way, but in a real desiring to see the person change and come to God. So these large crowds are following him. But Jesus wants more than just followers. He wants more than just a crowd of people following to see what he'll do next or how he'll do it or how he'll speak or what he'll say. He wants more than that. He wants disciples. Now, Jesus has a way of speaking that is kind of similar to um, dynamite fishing. Right? Has anyone ever done dynamite fishing? Or seen dynamite fishing? Or know what dynamite fishing is? So dynamite fishing is exactly what it sounds like. You go out, usually in the south, in a little boat into a lake or river, and you light a stick of dynamite, you throw it in the water, and then it blows up underwater, and then what happens? The fish all float up to the surface, right? Either dead or stunned. And then you just go around with a net, scooping them up and tossing them in the boat, right? That's dynamite fishing, right? You don't necessarily know what's down there, but when you drop the dynamite down there, you find out. It's pretty, I mean, it's much more effective than I, than my fishing, honestly. Um, of course, if you do it wrong, it has much larger consequences, you have to make sure you're over deep water, right? <laughs> that you actually get the dynamite out of the boat when you light it. That's an important step, right? So uh, Jesus, in his preaching, sometimes tosses out the charge, right? Tosses out the stick of dynamite and sees what comes up for people. He says things that are inflammatory, inflammatory on purpose to try to see what happens, who responds to him, how they respond, and what that reveals about their hearts. So he begins by saying, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. How's that for a showstopper? That's dynamite fishing, right? Jesus has tossed out an inflammatory statement for the purpose of seeing how people respond. Notice he doesn't say in-laws, right? Because people might jump at that one, right? No, he says... Father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. Now, commentaries will tell you uh, that the word hate, the word that's translated here as hate, is a Semitic expression uh, for loving less. Right? Like, I love chocolate, I hate vanilla. Well, it doesn't mean I really hate it, it's just I don't like it as much as chocolate. That's what they would say. Um, now, I'm sure that's probably true. But the weight of the language is still there. There is still this ranking of things where unless one puts Jesus at the very top and everything underneath him, you can't be his disciple, is what he's saying. Compared to following Jesus Christ, everything else, no matter how good, how wonderful, how beautiful, must fade into the background. Now, if that didn't get us, he goes on to say, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, we stand in the 21st century looking back a couple centuries back to Jesus. I mean, a couple millennia back to Jesus. And we think that this is a very strong thing to say, right? Because we have the crucifixion in mind when we think of this. But remember that Jesus is prophetically speaking about the crucifixion here. It has not happened yet. They're not even in Jerusalem. 
Jesus is proclaiming what will take place before anyone even knows it will take place. Before Pilate knows, before Herod knows, before the people know, before anyone knows, Jesus Christ is letting them know what is going to happen. That he will be crucified. That he will die on a cross. Jesus knows. And so he tells his disciples, if you want to be my disciple, you have to carry the cross. Those who would follow Jesus must be prepared to be crucified as well. This is the path of a disciple of Jesus. Death, crucifixion. With that cheery beginning, uh, you know, he knows how to really make our hearts flutter, right? Uh, Jesus then explains to them why he is bringing up these topics. These things are important because people need to know and understand the scope of the undertaking before they begin it. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but in my house, I'm famous for statements like, well, I'm just going to go work on the car and fix this thing. It should take about an hour. Right? Anyone ever say things like that? Yeah, a week later, I come back and I'm like, whoa, I didn't fully think that through. Right? Because I didn't realize the A was connected to the B and then it affected the C. And then uh, I ended up breaking the D in the process, which then required me to, to remove the E and then replace the F. Right? And you end up in this cascade of things you just don't realize. It's like a spider web, how everything is connected. Right? Um, we just try to think things out, but we don't always have a full understanding of what the scope of work will entail. So Jesus gives us two examples to help us think about the scope of work of being a disciple. The first is building a tower, right? If you want to build a tower, which you probably all want to do, um, what do you need to do? What are the steps? You got to get land and you got to lay a foundation. That's right. But before you lay the foundation, what do you need? A plan and money and Come on, think of the county. A building permit. There you go. Thank you for keeping it legal. So we're going to only have legal towers around here. Uh, yeah, you got to watch out for ridge lines, right? Things like that. Um, you know, cell towers, things, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, so you start building your tower and then what, and then you have to really be thinking about money, right? You really got to know because you don't want to get partway finished. And stop. You don't want to get a little bit into the project, use up all the money you have, and not have enough to finish the project. And why don't you want to do that according to Jesus? It's really funny because people will make fun of you. Right? It's, kind of, it's kind of this funny thing. He's, he's like, uh, he says, um, otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Ha, ha, ha. Right? It's kind of funny that he says that, isn't it? Instead of saying, it'll be a waste or anything, he says, no, people will make fun of you. I guess people were the same back then as they are now. Now, the next example he gives us of planning and preparation and counting the cost is going out to war. Right, which we often think about. Uh, when you go out to war, what do you think about? 
Your enemy, there you go. You got to know your enemy. All right, good old Shang Su there. All right, and what else do you need to know? How big their force is, right? You probably want to know, like, how they're equipped. You want to know where they're located. You want to know your own military, too. If you can get there, if you can project your force at, at that, at, you know, in the speed you need to, to, to engage with them in a favorable location, uh, you need to know how many people you have. And Jesus says, if you go out with 10,000 soldiers and they come at you with 20,000, you want to count the cost. And you probably at that moment want to brush up on your negotiating skills, right? Because it might be better to sue for peace than it is to go out and be decimated by the enemy. Right? You want to count the cost. Jesus wants the people who follow him to know that it will cost them to be his disciples. Then he leaves us with this bomb. He just absolutely drops this right on our doorstep. Right? There is this sense of, well, what will it cost me to be a disciple? And Jesus says, therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up. How much of your possessions? All. All All of your possessions. All of them. That's a lot, right? You cannot become his disciple unless you give up all your possessions, everything. Jesus gives us no qualifications, no escape, no like release clause, nothing. He says everything must belong to the Lord. Everything must belong to him. Now that's what he calls us to. Unqualified surrender and sacrifice and placing Jesus Christ at the place of total primacy. And really, who does Jesus think he is to ask us to do this? I mean, does he really know how hard this is? Does he really know what a large sacrifice it is to be his disciple? Doesn't he know how hard it would be? Maybe he has no idea how hard it is to give up everything and to sacrifice for others. Or maybe he does. Maybe he's the only one who's ever known exactly how much it costs to be a disciple. Because he, in his following of his father, laid down absolutely everything for us. He left his place in heaven, his place of authority and power, was born as a poor child lived in humble means, and gave up even that to die the death of a criminal on a cross so that you and I could be reconciled to God. Jesus knows the cost of discipleship because he has paid the cost of discipleship. He has sacrificed everything. Remember that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, not your will, but mine be done. That is the word of a disciple. In our gospel passage for today, Jesus challenges his audience and us as well to be his disciples. 
And he tells us what it takes to be his disciple. Now, the word disciple is still used in our modern world, world, but it doesn't carry the same connotation as it did in the first century of, in Israel. Uh, back then, a disciple devoted their entire life, everything that they had, to follow the rabbi and to be just like him, to be just like their teacher. They would walk like him. They would talk like him. They would eat like him. They would adopt his mannerisms. They wanted to be just like their rabbi. There's a Jewish proverb that says um, something to the effect that as you follow your rabbi, what you want is that as they lift their foot up and you put your foot down, the dust from the bottom of their, from the sole of their sandal falls on the top of your foot. Right, Because your foot is going right underneath the spot in the very location where their foot was. So that when people look at a line of disciples following their rabbi, they see one set of foot, footprints. Right, Not everyone walking their own way, but everyone following right behind the rabbi. That's what it means to be a disciple. To seek to be just like the rabbi. Jesus has shown us the way. He has lived in complete and perfect obedience to the Father. And he calls us. He invites us. What an honor that he invites us to be his disciples, to follow him as he has led the way. The challenge for us is that the path of discipleship is death. It's death. Death to self death to our possessions, death to uh, whatever we think our own focus is in life, death to all of that. And the beautiful thing about Christian death is that death is never the end because from that death comes true life where we are liberated from being controlled by what we own and rather are controlled and uh, live for God No longer are we held sway under the power of this world, but we are held by our God. The path of the disciple is death, but the path of the disciple is also freedom and life. May we, fallen, broken people, turn to Jesus Christ today. May we be crucified with him. May we die to ourselves, and may we live to Jesus Christ. And may his resurrection be our resurrection as well, as we walk in life following him as his disciples. Let's pray. Lord God, you call us to death, Lord, and and we're pretty terrible at that. We pray that you would give us the strength to die for you. Give us the strength to lay down our lives. Give us the strength, Lord God, to understand and to confess those areas of our life where we are living for ourselves and for our own passions. Lord, forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for our desire to be independent of you. Lord God, and help us to trust you with our heart, our soul, and our mind. And we pray, Lord God, 
that as we go out into this world, we would follow you as your disciples, walking, Lord, in your footsteps, trusting in you with our heart, soul, and mind. Lord God, show us what it means to be a disciple and help us to be one today. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.